Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon. I'm here with my colleague, Suzanne Spradley. We are both attorneys in NFP's legal and compliance team, and we're happy to be on this podcast today, and as always, to break down some of the issues that are facing employers and uh, other people in, in the health insurance world. So recently, Suzanne, we've seen an increase in discussion about single-payer system, about Medicare for All. We've addressed this on past podcasts a little bit. We've decided to do a three-part series on single-payer, and we're first today going to look at current single-payer systems so that we can gain a better understanding of what we're talking about. Then the second part of this will be reviewing the parts of the current U.S. system that are working specifically the employer-sponsored market. Um, the third uh, session, we will take a deeper dive into the financing and the funding of some of the proposals that we're hearing about in our world today. So uh, let's start with setting the stage of what we're talking about when we say single-payer. We've talked about this in the past, though, Suzanne, but let's hit reset. What are we talking about with single-payer? So, yeah, the single-payer system and that term is used um, in different ways, but generally what we're talking about is a system in which the government provides a nationalized health insurance, um, it, and they, they determine what they're going to pay the provider. So the doctors and hospitals, they set the prices for what they will pay. It could be alongside private insurance. It may exclude private insurance. It could be government-run providers, or it could be um, private providers and being funded. So it, it, there's really a bit of a gamut. Yeah, there's a spectrum um, there that you're talking about. A spectrum. Right. So you, you have to dig into the details a bit more and go beyond just the, the title that's applied to it. And what's really interesting is when you look at the polling, Medicare for All, that term of art, um, seems the be to receive the best support in polling. When you use other terms like socialized medicine, universal health care, single payer, none of those poll as well as Medicare for All. So hence, you'll probably hear medical, Medicare for All and of a lot of the political debates mm -hmm. uh, for those that are, are pushing for this kind of system. And what's really interesting is when you dig into it further in the polling, when they show, would you, do you support a system in which you don't have copay or deductibles? People say yes, you know, very high polling for that. But then when you add in details like what about if it creates um, increase in taxes or longer wait times for care, a significant drop in support. So it really requires education and an understanding of whatever system we're talking about. Um, so it's, it's very important to dig into it further. Right. So let's start right there at the far left when we're talking about a socialized uh, system for healthcare. Let's look at an example across the pond in Britain. Yeah, so Britain is um, a, a very good example for socialized medicine, and it's really been around um, one of the longest. It was created in 1948, and we just have to look for actual published reports on access to care, and you can find really some problems with that system currently. So uh, reports are showing that in England alone, there's about 3.9 million patients awaiting care that are on the NHS waiting list. And there's over 300,000, actually 362,000 patients that have had to wait longer than 18 weeks. So that's they've had to wait four and a half months for hospital treatment. So picture that if you're in the U.S., you need to get into the hospital, but yet you're told you can't get care in the hospital for four and a half months. Um, and then 
There is an additional 95,000 who have been waiting more than six months for treatment, and that means they have already had to wait to have that initial diagnosis and referral, and now they're having to wait even longer to actually get the treatment. So there is a gentleman, Mark Porter, who's the council chair of the British Medical Association, and he was quoted as saying that there's just a really, there's an increase in pressure on all services, and that care is now increasingly being rationed. And that is not a term that we like to hear in the U.S., but it's really, um, you look at, it's the Achilles heel of socialized medicine. When you don't have profit motive, there's less of an incentive for doctors and providers to enter into the field of medicine. When you have a dwindling supply of doctors and an increase in demand for patients, you're going to result in shortages and rationing of care. And that's what's happening right now in Britain. Um, we look at other studies that have been done. There was a study by the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and that was not familiar with me. But when I went, looked into it further, it is really a world leading center for research in public and global health. And they concluded that around 750 patients a month are passing away under the NHS system due to subpar quality of care. That's astonishing to me. Right. What they identified um, were things like um, inattentive monitoring, monitoring of the patient's condition, doctors making the wrong diagnosis, which we certainly see that here in the U.S., um, or patients being prescribed the wrong medicine. So those were three items that they noted as causing um, a, a death in, under the NHS system. Um, which, again, is astonishing. Um, and then there's some additional reports that we've seen tied to cancer. And they said one in four Britons with cancer are denied treatment of the latest drugs proven to extend life. And that's something that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but those that are diagnosed with cancer or heart attacks are more likely to die more quickly than those of most other developed nations. So just a general concern of how care is actually accessed. They may say that they have a access to insurance or to coverage, but then receiving that actual care, um, there's some real problems in the UK right now. Right. So along with that idea of access to coverage, um, being able to see the doctor, even if you have these wait, uh, long wait times, Another reason maybe uh, Medicare for All or single payer is gaining popularity in the U.S. has to do with the idea or the notion that this is free, right? I, right. I can go to the, the government is paying for it. Um, but we all know nothing comes for free, right? Right. So let's talk a little bit about the, the funding of the system. How does that work? Well, 98.8% of the NHS funding comes from general taxation. So yes, you may not pay for it as a copay, mm -hmm. but you'll pay for it as a tax. Um, so the personal, I looked up the personal income tax rate in the UK right now, and it stands at 45%. Right. Uh, I will say that in, unlike other socialized countries, Britain does permit private insurance. So there is this other scheme that's available out there for those who can afford it. So um, Almost like a buy-up system. Similar to a buy-up system. Mm. Different, than, different than some countries that don't allow providers to both um, receive funding from the federal government and receive private pay as well. In Britain, they do. They allow the the providers to provide um, care to those that are covered by a private insurance. And about a third of the people with private insurance purchase it on their own and the rest receive it through some kind of benefit of employment, expats, for instance. Mm -hmm. So you um, you do see that there's an increase in the interest for private insurance in, in recent years as there's been a lack of access to care so that they can try to get in to see the doctors. I did see one interesting article written by a doctor that said what he found was um, if he tried to 
um, receives a specialized consult, then the doctors were not willing to assist and, and really said, why are you why are you asking us when it was covered by the NHS? But when it was covered by private pay, they were more than willing to jump through hoops to try to take on that private pay patient. Interesting. So um, there is an issue with receiving care in the in in uh, Britain. Okay, so that's a great recap of what's going on over the pond there with maybe the uh, further to the left extreme example of or Medicare for all. Let's look north here across the border in Canada, as that's another country touted as having a system that we should perhaps look to as a model for socialized medicine. Can you tell us a little bit about Canada? Yeah, and, and of course, in both of these systems, you would be able to find some benefits, but we're really looking at um, some of the real challenges. And right. the in Canada, the Canada Health Act was introduced in 1984, and it really governs the agreement between the provinces who administer the health services and the feds who manage the the money, the funds, and they transfer the funds to the local government. So it really is set, it also sets up kind of the parameters for how healthcare is delivered in the provinces. So think of coverage as being publicly funded, meaning the funds do come from federal and provincial taxes, similar to federal and state taxes here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, but the care is provided by plans in each province or territory, similar to it would be kind of like a state-based mm -hmm. um, system rather than a single unified federal health plan. And so that's, you know, that's one argument for having um, state run, uh, pushing some of the decisions back down to the state because you do have unique characteristics in each state of the population. Right, right. Um, the Canadian government pays into the plans, but each territory and each province is responsible for taking the money to create their own system under the guidelines that, that are set up under the Canadian Health Act. So again... It's a little bit like the U.S. system under the ACA in right. that there's a federal minimum standard and then... Uh, states are left to come up with some of the details. Right. There. Right. So the CHS, it dictates that medically necessary services must be covered at no cost, but there's no real distinct definition of what medically necessary means. And so, again, as you said, each province kind of makes that decision. Mm -hmm. But generally, regular visits to primary care and hospital and diagnostic procedures are going to be covered. But there's going to be cost sharing when it comes to things like ambulances or, or prescription drugs or dental care vision, long-term care. Um, and unlike in the UK, where healthcare is socialized, the hospitals in Canada are run um, technically by private uh, providers. But there is so many restrictions around how that's done. You can't really say that it's a market-based um, system. Right. So again, another parallel with uh, the ACA in the U.S. to help us understand when you say medically necessary items are covered in Canada, that's similar to preventive services here in the U.S., covered without cost sharing, but then once you get outside that medically necessary realm, there is additional cost sharing applied uh, to, to Canadians. How, do the, how does Canada fare in terms of access and well, quality? Yeah, so if we think of, if we kind of pare down the debate on healthcare policy, you look at three things. You usually look at access, affordability, and quality. Mm -hmm. and, and with quality, we could be talking about wait times, which is an easier thing to measure than other outcomes um, for quality. And so Canada certainly passes the first test with blind colors. Every resident of the country is insured under the CHA. Um, certain th those procedures that are covered um, are free at the point of delivery. So certainly from that standpoint, they're doing well. Um, but when you come to other metrics like quality of care, and in this case, we're going to just focus on um, acts, we're, we're going to speak to um, the time frame in which it takes to receive care. Canada clearly lags behind most other developed Western nations. And I looked to a report that was done by the Commonwealth Fund, and it ranked Canada dead last 
in terms of timeliness of care. It showed that 29% of adult Canadians who fell ill and needed a specialist had to wait two months or longer. So just imagine that if you're really mm-hmm. ill and you need to see a specialist, you can't see them for two months. Um, and 18% waited four months or longer. And that's compared to 6 and 7% of Americans, respectively. So clearly there's a longer wait time in Canada. The median wait for neurosurgery after seeing the doctor is about 46.9 weeks, which is 10 months. That would be unheard of here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, And in Canada, if you need orthopedic surgery, like a hip or knee replacement, you're going to wait a startling 38 weeks. So... Um, close to nine months. Right. I mean, that's that really is um, significant wait times, and you would not see that here in the U.S. Right. There is also new research that was done by the Fraser Institute, which is a top think tank in Canada, and they looked at um, different medically necessary procedures that would be associated with increased mortality, and they concluded that between 25,000 and 63,000 Canadian women may have died as a result of increased wait time between 1993 and 2009. So it was a recent study, but it looked retrospectively, obviously, to a period of time that was, uh, uh, you know, a bit longer. Um, but it it shows a significant issue with potential deaths related to wait time. So you may say wait time is an inconvenience, but it could be way more than that. It could have more significance um, in terms of actual death. Um, so it's the number's just staggering, and it doesn't even begin to, to think about quantifying the possibility of increasing disability, just a poor quality of life, or mental stress that's tied to having a protracted uh, wait time to right. get actual it be, care. That can be very discouraging to hear that kind of a wait time. There's a system inside the U- United States that perhaps provides an example of socialized care that's a little lesser known, and that's the Veterans Administration um, that Um, operates right here in the U.S. for our veterans. Can you tell us a little bit more about the VA system? Yeah, I think we can look, if we talk about do we want the government to run our healthcare system, just Mm -hmm. look to the VA because that's what we're doing already right here in the U.S. And it truly is, when you think of it, it really is a socialized single-payer program because the taxpayers fund the system, the hospitals are owned by the government, and the providers are all government um, employees. So there's Mm -hmm. your U.S. socialized system right there. So how are they doing? I think we all know that they have not been doing well, as we've heard in the news. Mm -hmm. Um, Although I'm sure they've offered good care to many veterans, we've been hearing in the news about things like the cost overruns and efficiencies, prolonged wait times for care. Um, We've heard accusations of mismanagement of funds, falsified records, and even preventable patient deaths. And so there was a report that was released last year in 2018 by a VA watchdog, and it really, really showed some serious deficiencies. And, and uh, I think anyone would be concerned if this was applied broadly to our healthcare system. So just some examples were like a patients who underwent prolonged anesthesia, which is dangerous in itself, because surgical instruments were unavailable once they were put under. Mm-hmm. Um, doctors and nurses were forced to make do by borrowing supplies from a nearby hospital while 500,000 items sat unused in a warehouse. And they showed the government rented items like three home hospital beds for nearly $875,000, almost a million dollars that would have only cost $21,000 to buy. Serious problems with how efficient that system is run. Right. And we've seen those kind of examples in other government run Uh, programs across the country as well. So thanks for breaking that down for us in our first episode here. Again, we wanted to look at some of the current single-payer systems 
learn a little bit more about uh, how those are structured and some of the challenges that are associated with them. In our next episode, we'll get more into parts of the current U.S. system that are working, namely the employer-sponsored market. We're going to really focus on that to kind of highlight the things that are working and maybe how adjustments can be made around those things that are working rather than tearing down a system that is working. Exactly. Yeah, the, the the small portion of the of the market and the individual market that we're trying to fix by creating a single payer system um, is really potentially going to uproot portions of our system that are working well. Right. So we'll dig more into that in our next episode. Thanks, Suzanne, for breaking this down. As we like to say on the podcast, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.